Today we're going to resume our series, Hear What the Spirit Says to the Churches, from Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The book is called Revelation because it begins uh, a revelation of Jesus Christ, and that's really who the book is about, what the book is about, revealing who this person is and what he's going to do. And in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks, and he speaks words of affirmation, and he speaks words of correction, and he speaks these words to people just like us, to churches. He actually first spoke these words to seven churches that existed like 2,000 years ago. And you might think, well, why are we reading somebody else's mail, uh, especially when it's that old? But this isn't just history, because at the end of each one of the messages to each of the seven churches, Jesus says this. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, if we're willing to listen. If we have an ear to hear, then God's Spirit has something to say to us today, if we want to hear it. And what he says to any church, he says to every church. So these letters have life lessons uh, for each of us. And so that's what we're doing. We're asking the Lord of the churches to speak to us. In fact, let's do that right now. Will you, will you bow with me and let's just ask him to speak to us and give us ears to hear. And Lord Jesus, we just, we want to lift that request up to you. Uh, Lord, I don't know what kind of week everybody's had. I just know my week. And, and as I come in here today, I know I can either have an ear to hear or I can be distracted and focus on something else or be preoccupied with a problem or I don't know. Lord, you know my heart. You know the hearts of everyone in here. Father, we just ask you to give us the gift of ears to hear what your Spirit says to the churches. So, Lord, help us listen. Help us respond for our good, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we come to the fourth letter, the fourth message, and it's to a group of Jesus followers in a town called Thyatira. And it's found in Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. So if you have a Bible and want to turn there, last book of the Bible, chapter 2, verse 18. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can help yourself to one that's in the rack in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible and you'd like to take that one home, I'd love to have you do that. Uh, The words will also be up on the screen behind me. So Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. To the angel in the church of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. And I'm impressed when I read that. Doing more now than they did when they started. You know, it seems like groups... People usually very enthusiastic out of the gate, start something, and then, you know, it kind of dwindle off. But they didn't. They got stronger as they went. Nevertheless, 
I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to his deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you, only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, if you've been with us in the series, or if you've ever read these letters before, uh, you may have noticed that in every single one of these letters, Jesus always begins by referring back to a description of himself that we have in chapter 1. Back in chapter 1, the apostle John is in exile on this little island, and the Lord Jesus appears to him in a vision. And when John first sees this vision of Jesus, he falls down as though just struck dead. He is so overwhelmed by the majesty and the glory of Christ. He just face first, right in the dirt, awestruck. And then Jesus puts his hand on him, raises him to his feet, says, don't be afraid. And then John proceeds to try to describe what is basically indescribable. I mean, he can't give us a photograph. So... He, he uses symbols, he uses word pictures to try to describe what he has seen. Why is he doing that? Because he wants us to feel. He wants us to feel it. He wants us to, to just get a taste of how absolutely awesome this person is. So going back to Revelation 1, verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Imagine all these pictures of just this intense, bright, almost blinding glory. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. And Jesus, every time he addresses one of these churches... He keeps referring back to this intense description. 
of his holiness and his power and his glory. So chapter 2, verse 1, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Verse 8, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. Verse 12, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. And here in verse 18, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Why does Jesus keep doing this? Why does he want us to keep this picture of himself in mind as he addresses the churches? I think it's this. It's because if we don't take him seriously, we won't take what he says seriously. I mean, you realize the only reason anything Jesus says matters is because he matters. I mean, the only reason, it's because of who he is that we listen to, that we should listen to what he says. And it's really important to get this, I think, because so much of what he says in these letters is hard. It's just hard. And today's message is is a perfect example of this because it goes against the grain. It goes against the grain of our natural inclinations. It goes against the grain of our culture. It goes against the grain of what influential people would say. And then that means we've got a decision to make. You know, if Jesus says one thing, and our own desires, or what our culture says, is something different, whose opinion counts? What do we go with here? Whose whose directions do we follow? For example, this letter to this church in Thyatira has some strong statements about sexual immorality. Which, by definition, this is what the term means. It means any sexual activity outside of the husband-wife relationship of marriage. That's what it means. Now that is something that our culture doesn't take seriously at all. Our culture says, what are you talking about? That is no big deal. Now, why is that? Why does our culture say that? Why does our culture say that sex outside of marriage is no big deal? Is it because it's so fun and because it doesn't really hurt people? Well, that's what people may say, but that's not the real reason. The real reason is because we don't take God very seriously. And we don't take what he says very seriously. And when it comes to what people do sexually, they figure, well, either they don't think about God at all, because what's God got to do with it? Or they think, well, he doesn't care. Or if he does care, he's not going to do anything about it. And none of those things is true. Not one of those things is true. And the reason we know it's not true is because Jesus says it isn't true right here and elsewhere in the Bible. And so if you take Jesus seriously, you've got to take what he says on any subject seriously. So what does he say here? Well, he's basically telling us that what, what we ought to do as a church, what we as a church ought to do about people who call themselves Christians but then promote ideas 
and behavior that are not Christian. In other words, these are people who, who claim to love Jesus, who claim to represent him, and yet they, they say, they advocate doing things and believing things that Jesus there's contrary to what Jesus says we should believe and what we should do. And what we're told here is that people like that should not be tolerated. What they're doing is not okay, and we shouldn't act like it's okay. But that's what the church in Thyatira was doing. They had someone in their church, a woman, called herself a prophetess. That means... She claimed to be proclaiming the truth of God, God's truth. And she was promoting participation in immoral sexual behavior and in pagan, idolatrous worship activity. And the church wasn't doing a thing about it. They knew about it, they knew it was happening, and they were acting like it's, it's okay. And, you know, we, we might hear that and we think, good night, how did that happen? How could that be okay? I mean, how could, how could somebody in church set themselves up as someone who speaks for God and be promoting immoral sexual activity and idolatrous worship and the church go, eh, that's okay? How could that happen? The reason it happened there is the same reason it could happen here and the reason it has happened in other churches, other groups, and so on. And it happened because it's always much easier to go with the flow than to swim upstream. I've got a fishing date for tomorrow. A friend of mine and I, we're going to go fishing. We're going to go up to the North Fork of the Lewis. And I've been there before. And there's this place where you have to cross the river. And it's like, you know, waist high. And it's swift. It's really moving. And I mean, I've got to have, you know, my wading boots. And I've got this staff. And you've got you to gotta fight the current. And to go up against the stream is a lot harder than going down. And I guarantee you, if I lose my footing, I know which direction I'm going. <laughs> I'm going down. I'm not going up. Nobody floats up on this river. It is always easier to go with the flow. Always. And we need to realize not to, you know, sit in judgment on these Christians because they were experiencing intense pressure from their culture to just go along with some things. You know, as you read these seven letters to these seven churches, certain things keep coming up. You know, in the first letter, it talks about the teaching of the Nicolaitans which apparently was bad because Jesus says he hates it. And then the same teaching comes up in the, letter, in the third letter. And there it's linked with the teaching of Balaam, who promoted, guess what, sexual immorality and pagan idolatrous worship. And now we get to the fourth letter and we find these same issues coming up again. It's kind of like, what's the deal? How can these keep coming up? Well, what it tells us is that these things were a common, influential part of the culture in which all of these people lived. You know, these seven churches were all pretty close together. And so it was the same culture that they were all in. And we know from history that there was a very tight connection 
between business and the local pagan temples. And the way it worked is, if you wanted to be a part of the business, whatever it was, you know, you made little silver, uh, you were a silversmith, or you, you worked in wood, or you had some other trade, well, there'd be like a local guild, kind of like a trade union thing. And if you wanted to be a part of that, and you wanted to earn a living doing that, then you, had, you were expected to support the local temples, you were expected to go to the pagan celebrations, eat the food sacrificed to the idols, and participate in the sexual activity that went on in there. And if you didn't, then it would seriously affect your ability to do business and make a living. Now picture that. Picture that if you go along with it, you can provide for your family. And if you don't go along with it, you get no business, you get not to contribute, you don't get to make a living. That's the pressure. It's intense. Now, you mix that with the very natural desire we all have to fit in culturally, you know, peer pressure, whatever you want to call it. I mean, when everybody's doing it and you're the only one who isn't, how does that make you feel? Like a dork. <laughs> you feel like you need to comply. Nobody wants to be the one weirdo who doesn't fit in. Nobody likes that. So what a relief. What a huge relief when somebody comes along and says, they love Jesus, they're an expert in the Bible, they're an expert in theology, and they say to you, oh, no problem. You just go ahead. You go ahead and be a part of that. Of course you can do those things and be a good Christian. In fact, if you want to be a good Christian, you should do those things. Because after all, Jesus told us to love people. And he told us not to judge people. And if we're going to reach them, we need to just go ahead and join in and do what they're doing. And all of a sudden, what we thought the Bible said was bad, now somebody's saying, no, it's really good. And they're doing it as an influential Christian leader. Sounds kind of shocking, doesn't it? But you know what? I examine the tendencies of my own heart and I can understand it. I can understand how it happens. I don't know about you, but I would usually rather go along than take a stand. I don't like being different. I don't like being culturally out of it. I don't like being labeled intolerant bigoted, narrow-minded. I don't like that at all. I would much rather have people think I'm cool. I'm sure that comes as a shock to some of you, but <laughs> I'd kind of like that if somebody thought I was cool. I want people to think I'm enlightened. I want people to think I'm reasonable. I like being admired. But you know, sometimes following Jesus... And being admired 
don't mix. Sometimes following Jesus means taking a stand when the culture says go along. Sometimes following Jesus means having to say, that's not okay. So I think the Lord of the churches is teaching us a couple of countercultural lessons here. Countercultural lessons. There's more, probably more than two, but we're going to look at two. And the first countercultural lesson is don't tolerate the promotion of sin. As a church, as a group of Jesus followers who wear the name Christian, when something that God calls sin is being repackaged and relabeled and redefined and remarketed as something harmless or even wholesome, don't look the other way. Don't ignore it. Don't pretend like it's not happening. It might feel loving to tolerate it, but it's not. Now, I want to say something about tolerance here so we don't misunderstand. Because there's a, there is a kind of tolerance that is very good and very important, very necessary, particularly in a culture where people have really different ideas about stuff. There is a kind of tolerance that's good. And this is the tolerance that says this. It says, even though I strongly disagree with you, even though I really, really don't agree with what you are saying or believe or think we should do, and even though I may not like you, I'm going to tolerate your existence. I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to persecute you. I'm not even going to make fun of you. In fact, I'm going to seek to do good to you. See, that kind of tolerance, as followers of Jesus, we're commanded to be tolerant in that way. Matthew 5, 43, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So just as God tolerates those who hate him and does good to them anyway, we're to do the same. Desire their good. That is not the kind of tolerance Jesus is speaking against here. This is different. Here, he's addressing a phony tolerance which says every idea and every behavior are equally valid, equally good, and so we should embrace them all and we should celebrate them all. Here, the issue is a church tolerating somebody who is promoting sin in the name of Christ. And by sin, let's be clear about this, by sin, we're talking about something that God defines as sin. And where does God define sin? Here. So we're talking about biblically defined sin. We're not talking about stuff that's sincere, 
people who love Jesus and love his word have disagreements about. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about stuff that God says this is sin. So sex outside of marriage is sin. God says so. Uh, Getting involved in, in worshiping idols and false gods is sin. God says so. And tolerating sin, saying that's okay, doesn't really matter, it's not so bad, that's not loving. No matter how strongly people say it is loving. And see, that's the card people play. They play the love card. Well, if you love me, then you'll say this is okay. It's not. I, 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 can't. I remember as a teenager, yes, I can't remember that far back. <laughs> I remember as a teenager really struggling with God's rule on sex, basically, that it's for a husband and wife in marriage only. I'm really wondering about that. It's like, what, what is up with that? I don't get that. Because it seems like it's kind of arbitrary. God just went, well, should it be okay or not? Nope, it's not okay. And like God was like trying to keep people from enjoying themselves. So I really wondered about that. Well, I can tell you now, after 23 years of pastoral experience, after watching the world go insane on this issue, I don't wonder why God made that rule anymore. I don't wonder at all. He made that rule because he's good and because he loves us and because he wants to spare us a whole lot of heartache. The sheer amount of misery in this world because of not paying attention to God's directions on this, it's just staggering. When you add up all of the suffering caused by sexual abuse, by rape, by premarital sex, by adultery, sexually transmitted diseases, abortions, sexual dissatisfaction within marriage because the partners have really hurt their ability to experience true intimacy. When you add up all of the suffering, it's massive. It's just massive. Now, if you've blown it in this area, please hear this. Jesus offers us forgiveness. He offers us healing. And the sooner we realize that and accept his forgiveness, put our trust in him and start following his directions, the better off we're going to be. But we never do anybody a favor by acting like any sin is no big deal. We've got to get this. If God says something is sin, it's destructive. God's not making his rules arbitrarily. It's destructive, even if we don't think so. This woman in Thyatira, codenamed Jezebel, calls herself a prophetess. Jesus says she was misleading. She was deceiving his servants. Well, misleading, deceiving people is not loving. It's destructive. We don't help people by telling them lies. We hurt them. 
She was also leading people in sexual immorality. That's destructive. I've already talked about that. She was encouraging people to eat food sacrificed idols. Now, we're not talking about food you buy in the market, which may or may not have been offered to a, uh, an idol. We're talking here about eating meat right off the barbecue in the temple as part of the worship of a false god. And worshiping a false god is destructive because it keeps us from the true God who alone can give us life. We talk a lot about the love of Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus and the grace of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus, and rightly so. But there's something else we need to not overlook, and that's the holiness of Jesus. Why does Jesus forgive sin? Because it doesn't matter? No. Because it matters so much that he went to the cross and died to take the punishment that sin earns upon himself so we wouldn't have to. It's not because sin doesn't matter, it's because it matters so much. That's why Jesus forgives. That's why he offers us pardon. But if we don't take that pardon, the only thing that's left is his judgment. And it's serious. Verse 22, I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. So, see, sin is destructive. And when it's promoted as a good thing, those who follow Jesus need to speak up lovingly and say, no, it's not. It's really not okay. Not because we say so. Our opinion's no better than anybody else's. It's not because we say so. It's because Jesus says so. And by the way, when I say lovingly, that's not an optional extra. It is so disturbing, it is so grieving, it is so terrible when people speak out against sin in anger, in frustration, in arrogance, in ridicule. You ever find yourself making fun of anybody or speaking derogatorily about people because of the sin they're connected with? That's not Christian, ever. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. And that brings us to the other countercultural lesson, which we've got to keep in mind as we're trying to apply this countercultural lesson. You know, don't tolerate the promotion of sin. The other thing we need to keep in mind is do be patient with sinners. Don't tolerate the promotion of sin, but be patient with sinners. Now you might wonder, well, how's that countercultural? I mean, aren't we as a culture all about being patient with sinners? No, we're not. Actually, there's a very big difference. There's a difference between patience with sinners and tolerance of sin. Here's the difference. It's a difference of goal. What's the goal of tolerance? The goal of tolerance is acceptance to where we say, this sin is no longer a sin. It doesn't matter. Every choice is equally good. 
The goal of tolerance is acceptance. The goal of patience is very different. The goal of patience is not acceptance, it's repentance. Helping somebody to realize that sin is so terrible that they turn from it. You know, one of the most amazing statements here in this whole letter is in verse 21. Jesus says, I've given her time to repent of her immorality. Think about that. Time to repent. Why? She was wrong. She was doing terrible things. She was leading people astray. She deserved judgment. Why give her time? The answer comes from the very heart of God. Look at Ezekiel 18.23. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? The heart of God wants people to live. I've heard people say, and I've said it myself, in foolish moments, why doesn't God do something about all the evil in the world? Why doesn't he hurt and do something? Conveniently forgetting that I'm part of the evil in the world. <laughs> Say, why, why give the world more time? What is God doing? How can this stuff just keep going on and on and on and God just gives more time and more time and more time? What's he thinking? 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. What promise is that? It's the promise to clean house. It's the promise to make right every wrong. It's the promise to put an end to evil forever. He's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Time to repent. Time to come to our senses and realize how wrong we are and how much we're hurting ourselves and hurting other people, how much we're dishonoring God. Time to turn from the things that are destroying us, from the things that are separating us from the one who made us and loves us. Time to receive forgiveness and mercy and grace. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord. There's repentance right there. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. So we have this two-sided responsibility when it comes to the promotion of sin. One side... Don't say it doesn't matter. Don't act like it's no big deal. 
Don't tolerate it. Don't look the other way. But then the other side. Those who are promoting it, those who are caught up in it, lovingly, patiently, point them to Jesus and his forgiveness and his grace. So be countercultural. Be countercultural. Be countercultural enough to hate sin and to say, this is bad because this destroys people and this dishonors God. Be countercultural and then be countercultural enough to love sinners and be patient with them and earnestly pray for and desire their repentance because we're all, we've all been in that category. Some of you may still be in that category. And I doubt any of us lives a whole day without at some point needing to repent and being so incredibly dependent on God giving us time, patience. Let's think about this as we uh, bow our heads for a minute. And I just want to appeal to you that if you're here today and something you've heard feels like God's just shining a light on your heart and saying, you need to quit that. You need to turn from it. You need to come to me. I just want to say, do it. And I can tell you from my own experience and from the experience of countless others, what Isaiah 55 says is true. He will freely forgive. He will abundantly pardon. He wants you to live. And it starts by just saying yes to Jesus Christ and who he is. And if you find within yourself just a a desire to not make waves, to not cause problems, to not take a stand, let's not call sin, sin. We need to hear from our Lord and, and hear that that's not love. That's not good for people. It's not good for us. But at the same time, we need to be patient. So let's ask the Lord to give us wisdom and and respond the way he wants. I'm just going to give you a minute to pray quietly. And you talk to God about whatever you need to talk to him about. And I'll do the same. And in just a minute here, I'll uh, close our time. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, your word tells us over and over again that you are gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Your word tells us that you desire that we would repent and live, that you freely pardon those who turn to you. Lord, turn us to you. Turn us to you. If there's anybody here who needs to turn to you today and hasn't yet, Lord, just help them turn. And Lord, give us this balance, not tolerating sin, but being patient with sinners. We ask you to help us, Lord. It's just hard. This culture we live in is crazy. And it's promoting things that are really bad for people. And help us know how to lovingly say no to that. And help us 
lovingly point people to Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.